quick. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is uh, where we're going to be this morning, particularly in verse 5. I want to invite you, as I did last Sunday, and I promise this will not become practice, at least I don't plan for it to be, but I want you to take your Bible and hold it up in the air, and I want you to repeat what we said last week, and you'll understand why in just a minute. This is God's very word given to me. Sorry, I totally messed that up, didn't I? (laughs) You're supposed to say, this is God's very word given to me. This is God's words given to me. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And I have all that it says is mine. That's why we're not going to do that every week, because we would butcher that. We're just not used to that kind of stuff. And uh, I definitely don't want it to become cliché. But we're saying that, we're making that statement for a reason. As a church, we're a church of born-again followers of Jesus Christ. We're not a church of religious people. We're not a church of people who try hard or want to do good. We're a people who have been born again. We've been brought from death to life, not in our own ability, not in our own strength, but through the gospel, through the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as such, as a church full of believers, we are a people who believe this book. We're a people of the word. We are unrelenting in what we believe regards to the Bible. It is God's voice to us. Think about that. When we read the scriptures, when we read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 in just a moment, we are reading the voice of God to us. And so we are committed as a church, to the authority, the sufficiency, and the inerrancy of Scripture. This is one of our core values as a church. This is what we're committed to. The Word of God's uh, authority over our lives. It's sufficiency to speak in all situations, and it's inerrancy. What we have before us is without error. It is the voice of God. And so it's our final authority. It takes precedence over our opinions, our emotions, and our preferences. We would do well to remember that as a follower of Jesus, regardless of how I feel about what the Bible says or feel about a situation, I'm to walk in what God says because it is true and everything else is air. And so we are then who it says we are. We can do then what it says we can do. And we have all that it says is ours. Question, do you believe that? Do you believe that? We should believe that. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible is God's word. It is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us. And so what it says we can do and who we are and what is ours, those are promises that we can literally take to the bank and stake our lives upon. And so if we said yes, if we affirm this statement of faith, here's another question for us. Why is it then that so many Christians who profess to know Jesus, profess to believe the Bible and walk and live under the authority of the Bible, why is it that so many believers today disregard one of the simple commands of Scripture to go and to make disciples of all people? If we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, if we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and we believe in the authority of Scripture, why is it that we fail to live out the command of Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples? I mean, Jesus tells us there in verse 18, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. The modern church today is failing and has failed in America to exemplify the evangelistic zeal of the first century church. What we read here in the New Testament is the life and testament of the New Testament early church, the church that was birthed at Pentecost, the church that was founded upon the preaching and teaching of the apostles. And what we see throughout the New Testament is this church is just flourishing. Despite persecution, the church is growing everywhere. In fact, when persecution breaks out the hottest, that's where the church grows the greatest. And when we come today, we have so much more materially and resource-wise and, and information and, 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 and membership. All of the things are so much greater today, yet the church, by and large, has little to no life compared to the first century church. came across a statement this week. A.T. Pearson says this of the early church. He says, Upon the primitive evangelism of the early church, God set his seal, confirming it with signs, following, and adding to the church daily, so that the most rapid and far-reaching results ever known to history were achieved within one generation. 
If none of our modern facilities of transit and publication, the gospel flew from lip to lip until it reached the bounds of the Roman Empire. Within one century, such one-by-one evangelism shook paganism to its center, and the priests of false faith saw with dismay their idol shrines forsaking. That's why the early church, you remember in the New Testament it talks about this, that the early church was accused of turning the world upside down for Jesus. They made such a a social impact in the lives of people through the gospel that people looked at them and says, you're just like Jesus, you're a little Christ, and the world is becoming turned upside down because of you. So what is it today? When we think of our culture and our generation, what is it today that can give hope to the atheist and the humanist and the hedonist who believes that this life is all that there is, and yet in their pursuit and in their understanding that this is all that there is, they still long for something more. How can we and what can we give them that can be of hope? What can heal the brokenness that is so pervasive in our culture? Last night, I, you might have seen this, but a show that was on Fox News, uh, Mark Levine's show, and he had this guy there who was producing or has produced a movie about sex trafficking in America. And one of the statements that I heard this guy say was that we who are supposedly leading the world in freedom and liberty and all of these things that are good, we are the most trafficking, sex trafficking country on the face of the earth. We are a broken nation. We are a broken culture. We are a broken society. And so what is it that can heal the brokenness that is pervasive in our culture and in our day? There's rarely a week that goes by, even in our own area here, that we don't hear of a mass shooting or some sort of sexual scandal or a terroristic threat. We look across the scope of culture and we see that the divide is great in every way. I'm not just talking politically, but every aspect of our culture is divided. We're broken. Families are broken. Marriages are broken. Individuals are broken. And so what is the answer to this brokenness? Some talking heads today would say the answer to the brokenness that we see in our society is we need more education. We need to educate better. We need to help people to understand what's going on about themselves, about their family. And we just need to educate people more. People who are underprivileged in certain areas need more education. And I'm not negating that this morning. In and of itself. Others would say we need education, but we also need wealth. We need, to, we need to help people get in a better financial situation because when they're in a better financial situation, then they won't be drawn to these other things that are such a, a drag on our society. And yet that's not the case at all because one of the guys that's in the headlines for weeks now is a multimillionaire, if not billionaire, right? And Jeffrey Epstein. Monetarily speaking, he had everything that you could ever want or Desire, and yet there was obviously something broken in his life. If all the accusations are true. So is it education? Is it wealth? Is it something else? Look around and study history. You'll see that there's never been a time in history where we've had more opportunities for information, more information readily available than what we have today. The click of a mouse, the click of a, a button on your phone. You can have any and every answer in life at your fingertips. There's never been a more prosperous time in history than in America today. You say, well, there's homeless people on the streets. Well, the Bible tells us that we're always going to have the poor, and we're always going to have those people that are on the back end of society, the downward side of society. But the poorest of the poor in our nation is among the richest of the poor or the richest of the people around the world. So what is it? Is it education? Is it wealth? I don't believe it's either one of those. The Bible, which is our authority, tells us the answer is the gospel. The answer is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to heal the brokenness within each and every person. You see, God has commissioned you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, he's commissioned us as his children to take his gospel. He's given us the responsibility. He's given us the privilege of taking that message to everyone in this broken world. God designed us for a relationship with himself. Sin has broken that design. And yet in the gospel, Jesus, God the Son, has provided the answer for the brokenness. Who's to take it to them? You and I. How will people hear unless they have a preacher? Paul in Romans chapter 10 is not talking specifically and exclusively about people like me. He's talking about us. We, as the children of God, take and preach the gospel where we live, where we work, and where we pray. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a hero of mine, great British pastor of the 19th century, pastor Metropolitan Baptist Church there in London. He said this, and it's on the screen. Soul winning is the chief business of the Christian. Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true believer. It's the business of every Christian. And it should be the pursuit of every true believer. The main pursuit. I think Spurgeon is leading us to believe that God didn't put you in your business to make money and provide for your family. He didn't put you on the street where you live so that you could have a nice house and, and just be in a safe community. He didn't put you in the circles of influence that you have so you'd have just simply good friends and people to network with. He puts you in those places because as a true believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, in his sovereignty, he strategically placed you there to be the light in a dark world, to be the city that's on the hill so that people could look at your life and your family and hear your voice as you proclaim the gospel and be drawn out of their brokenness into new life in Jesus Christ. Thank you. I was going to spur you to say that was a really good place. If you got your Bible there, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. I want us to read this verse, and I'm going to cue in, obviously, on a phrase that's in this verse. We studied verses 1 through 5 last Sunday, and so I'm not going to spend my time exegeting this passage this morning, but I'm going to focus in and, and try to bring some implications and some application to this phrase of do the work of an evangelist. So what does Paul say in verse 5? As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Lord Jesus, my prayer this morning is this is that as we look at this phrase, do the work of an evangelist, that you would give us a new and a fresh burden for the gospel. And for the gospel to be taken to the people that live around us and the people that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis, the, the people in our community who are broken and hurting and who are desperate, Lord, who some, even this week, will leave this life and enter, enter into eternity. God, may we feel the weightiness of the gospel. May we feel the, the burden of the gospel upon our lives. And God, may we be drawn to action because of it, for you have called us to this work. And so may your spirit speak through your word today. It is your voice to us. And God, as the church in Revelation is exhorted to have, may we have ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church this morning. We pray this and we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I mentioned last Sunday we looked at this passage. We learned from those first five verses that the Bible is sufficient. It's all that we need in our preaching and teaching. I don't stand before you week in and week out, and no one who occupies this, this platform, who stands and leads a small group, we don't come with our own teachings, our own understandings, our own uh, philosophy about life. We come saying one thing, God says. It's enough. It is sufficient in and of itself. And so we just want to take God's word and we want to declare it and apply it to the places of our lives, the broken places. The Bible mandates, in fact, it dictates what our ministries are and how they're to be conducted. We don't put those things together. God directs that. It alone contains the message that we stand upon, the message that we proclaim to others. And so it is this message that we are commanded to proclaim to sinners so that they can find healing for their brokenness, hope for their lostness. So this morning, I want us to look at this biblical idea of engaging in the gospel work. And I want you to see three implications here on the front end of the message. Then we're going to look at some truths that flow out of this idea of uh, doing the work of an evangelist. And so let's begin with these implications. Implication number one. As we seek to understand the gospel and Paul's declaration that we're to do the work of an evangelist, here's what we see. The gospel has enough power to change the world. Right? The gospel has enough power to change the world. Let me just get you some verses of what Scripture tells us about the gospel. I've already said part of it. Matthew 28, 19, the front end of that verse. Go, therefore, and make disciples. There is a strong command. It's an imperative, not a suggestion, not if you like to, not if you want to, not if you feel like it. No, Jesus says you're to do this because I have authority over your life as your Lord, as your Master, as your Savior. Go make disciples, right? 
Paul told the church at Rome in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not just the good person who grew up in a Southern Baptist church and went to Sunday school and went to VBS and, and has tried hard. No, the gospel is not just for that person. The gospel for, is for the person who is the worst of the worst and everywhere else in between. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, he says. That's the entire world. And so the gospel alone, we see here in the scripture, has the power to shake off every chain, the power to wipe away every stain, and the power to heal every pain. This is made clear all throughout the gospel and the letters. Mark chapter 5, we find a beautiful story of how Jesus, through his gospel, changed a man's life. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'm going to read a, a simple verse here in just a moment. But you probably remembered Mark chapter 5 and what's going on there. Jesus uh, is traveling through his ministry. He's crossing the, the, the Sea of Galilee. And a couple things, miraculous things happen in that journey. But when he gets to the other side, he's met by a man who's possessed by, the Bible tells us, legions of demons. We know him in the Bible as the demoniac. This man lived among the tombs, the Bible tells us. He was a, a monster of a man. No one could chain him up. No one could keep him in prison. They, it, when they did get their hands on him and began to bind him, he was like Samson in the book of Judges. He would just rip the, the chains off. He would tear himself out of, of the, the prison. No one could handle him. His appearance, his actions created nothing but fear in the hearts of everyone in that entire region. So they would go out of their way to avoid him. This man then lived among the tombs. He was a horrible, horrible man. Sin was ravaging his life. One day, though, Jesus showed up in his life. You know, we're like that demoniac in many ways. You might not have been possessed by demons, but your life was sinful, and it was everything but what God wanted it to be. And then one day you met the Son of God, right? And he changed everything. You remember the story. Jesus comes to the shore and immediately this man goes to meet Jesus. Why do you think he went to meet Jesus? That's because the demons knew who this man was that was showing up in their territory. And so they come to Jesus and they begin to speak with Jesus and they say, have you come here to destroy us? Have you come here to, to throw us into hell, basically? And they beg him to allow them to leave this man and to go into these pigs, this herd of swine. And so Jesus allowed that to happen. They run off the cliff. Everybody in the community is freaking out. They run into the city. They tell the story. And the people from the city come to Jesus. They want to know why this happened and what really happened. The Bible tells us something very interesting. When the people got there and they saw this man, they knew to be the demoniac, this crazy, monstrous man. And we see here in Mark chapter 5, in verse 15, an amazing thing that Jesus does in the life of people. It says, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. So they're cluing in. This is not who I might think it is. I know exactly who this, is, this guy is. And what is he doing? He's sitting there. He's clothed because he used to run around naked. Now he's clothed and he's in his right mind. And so they were afraid. Something drastic happened in this man's life. What we see here is that Jesus changed his life. He was brought from death to life. His life was different in every way. So much so that when we get down to verse 18, when Jesus is now going to leave and go on to the next place, this man who, was, who wanted anything but to be around Jesus and to actually follow Jesus, now comes to Jesus and says, let me go with you. You remember the story, Jesus says, no, you're not to go with me. I want you to go and tell the other people in the cities around here what God has done for you. And he went and he proclaimed the gospel. Told his story. What we see in this demoniac is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Through it, God changes lives. Through it, he heals the brokenness of the adulterer and the liar and the thief and the drunkard and the addict and the abuser, the religious and the self-righteous, everyone from A to Z, every color of person. It does not matter. Every sinner, the gospel has the power of God to change the life and to change the world. It has enough power to do that. And if we believe this... The implication is I have something to do with it. I have to do something with the gospel. Second implication. A gospel-centered church is not one where the pastor simply preaches the gospel, but one in which the entire church shares the gospel. There's a world of difference. 
I want you to just wrestle with this question. Who is it that's responsible for doing the work of an evangelist? What is Paul saying here back in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, when he says, do the work of an evangelist? Who is Paul commanding? Who is he addressing? Who is he speaking to? We know he's talking to Pastor Timothy, right? He's talking to this man who's leading, pastoring the church at Ephesus. This is a direct command to Timothy to do the work of evangelist, to be sober-minded as a pastor elder, to do the work of evangelist, to, to, to fulfill his ministry and to endure suffering, all of these things that he's encouraging him to do. But is it only for Timothy or is it also for the church? Good question. That leads us to our hermeneutic. How do we interpret Scripture? How how do we read this? What are we to do with certain verses? Obviously, when you read Scripture, you don't take verses on their own, right? You want to understand them in their broader context of that passage and chapter and that letter, whether it's a historical book or it's some sort of, uh, of poetry, the Psalms or the Proverbs or something like that, or if it's a New Testament letter or gospel, you want to understand the context of the passage, of the chapter, of the book and its genre. And then you also want to understand that passage and that statement in the greater context of what the rest of Scripture says, right? Otherwise, you run the risk of misquoting, misunderstanding what God's true message is. God never contradicts himself. The greatest commentary in the Bible is the Bible. And so what does the rest of Scripture have to say about the subject? We find there, we find that there are gospel commissions in each of the four gospels and also the book of Acts. Right? You probably know this. Matthew 28, I've been referring to. Mark 16, verses 15 through 18. Luke 24, 40 through 49. John 20, 21 through 23. And then Acts chapter 8, 1 8, that says, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Right? You're to do this, he says. Great commission passages. So all throughout the scripture, specifically in the Gospels and the New Testament writings, we see these instructions. For believers to engage in the gospel work. This work and this commission have been given to the church's leaders as well as to the laity. God's not just saying to the preachers, you're to do the work of an evangelist. He's saying to the leaders and the laity, we're to do the work of an evangelist. It's too big of a work for just a handful of people. It takes everyone. We cannot, nor should we expect every lost person to walk through our doors and come and have an opportunity to hear the gospel. If a person does come on Sunday morning or come to one of our events, will they hear about Jesus? Will they have an opportunity to respond in faith? Absolutely. But the vast majority of our community and the vast majority of our world will never walk through those doors and walk down these aisles. So it shouldn't be, that shouldn't be our mission strategy. Our mission strategy is to go and to tell, not to have a come and see strategy. Again, Spurgeon has some wise words here. He says, we ought not to regard the Christian church as a luxurious hotel where each Christian may dwell at his ease in his own inn, but as a barracks in which soldiers are drilled and trained for war. Do you keep the soldiers in the barracks or do you train in the barracks and send them out to fight? Do you keep the church members in the church house Or do you train them here and send them out? The New Testament precedent is we gather together to scatter and to scatter the seed of the gospel. That's what we're about. That's God's mission strategy from the very beginning. To go and to tell rather than to have them come and see. And so how did the gospel spread so quickly during the days of the early church? We read you that quote earlier that Pearson says that from lip to lip, no generation since the first century church has ever had the success of the first century church. How were they able to do that without all the technology we have today? Was it because Peter and Paul, the apostles, were such incredible orators? No, not at all. In fact, some would actually blister to Paul because he he, he spoke so strongly in their letters, but when they heard him face to face, they they compared him to men like Apollos, and they said, you're not very good of a a preacher. You're not great as an orator. Why why should I listen to you? You're not like some of these other people. So the gospel is not built upon personality. Gospel is built upon the person and the work of Jesus, and we're to share that and tell that to others. It changed thousands upon thousands of lives because each believer in the church took the responsibility for its proclamation where they lived, where they worked, and where they played. You hear that? Every believer, I believe, took responsibility to proclaim the gospel. 
And so a gospel-centered church is not one where the pastor simply preaches the gospel. It is a church where the entire congregation shares the gospel. And if I understand that and I believe that, then there's something that I have to do with the gospel. Third implication. The future of the world depends on the average believer being able to proclaim the gospel in everyday life. I think this is where a lot of people get tripped up. They're fearful. I don't know what to say. I don't know if I have the answer to certain questions. I don't know what I'm going to do in a certain situation. And so rather than doing something, most Christians do nothing. And it's all fear-based. And so my responsibility, our responsibility as church leaders is to equip the, work, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? That's what Ephesians tells us. And so we've done what what we believe we can, and we're always doing it to equip you. But you've got to take what you've been equipped with, or you've got to come and say, help me be equipped, and then you've got to go put it into work. Because the future of the world, I believe, depends on the everyday average believer being able to proclaim the gospel in everyday life. I mentioned Jesus commissions us to go and tell He doesn't commission us to come and see or to have this philosophy of having people come and see. 50 years ago, that was a strategy that many churches used in our convention. We built big churches. We had great ministries, and and people would come and see, and they would hear the gospel, and the gospel would change their lives, and then they would be discipled, but yet there was still this understanding that, that what we need to do is point them inward to the church, and people will come and see. And that strategy will work in a culture that has an aspect of God-centeredness, or at least God-awareness. People uh, had some church background. They had a, a, a little bit of an understanding of the gospel. They were uh, a little bit acquainted with the things of the Bible. And so the church was still, in many ways, the center of the community and the center of culture. And so people would be drawn to it and, and would come in and out of the doors of the church in some form or fashion. But that's not the culture in which we live today. Today, it's totally different. Today, I guess you could look at the church and say it's very similar to what we're seeing take place in the malls around our country. You've been been to the mall lately? It's not like it was 20 years ago. Once upon a time, everyone in the community came to a mall at some point. It was the place to shop. It was the place to eat. It was the place to, to go and to meet and mingle with people. Today, malls and box stores are closing up all around the country as people, rather than going out to shop and coming to see what the box stores have to offer, they're choosing to stay at home and shop online. Once upon a time, everyone in the community came to the church at some point. It was the place to build relationships. It was the place to network with others. It was the place to find solutions to life's problems. So if things began to to get difficult and, and hard in your life and in your family, you knew that I could find some sort of hope in the church and they would come to the church. Today, church attendance and involvement is plummeting as people choose to stay home and fill their calendars with other things. We're seeing a secularization really coming to a culmination in our culture in America. And so how can we fulfill the Great Commission with a come-and-see philosophy when the people are not interested in coming and seeing? Think about that. I'm not telling you not to invite people to church. I think you should still do that. I think many people will still come, but they're not going to come unless you invite them. There has to be a relationship that's bridging the gap. Otherwise, they're not even thinking about our church. I can't tell you how many people I meet in our community who've grown up here or lived here many years, and they have no idea where Red Lane is. We're on Red Lane Road. There's a sign down there. We're uh, not even a quarter mile off this Highway 60, and they have not the foggiest idea of where Red Lane is. It's because it's out of sight, out of mind. They're not thinking in those ways. The culture's changed. The community's changed. The commission has not changed. And so we cannot fulfill it if we're saying, come to us, come see what we have, look at our cute ministries. We put a banner out there for a lot of things that we do. You know how many people I can count that that have come in those doors because we put those banners out there? I don't know that I can count one or two. I really don't know of anybody that saw our sign. And so I think outside of that, I did have a couple that called about sports camp a couple weeks ago. So two in four years. Are we going to continue to do the banners? Sure. It helps people understand what we're doing. But it's not drawing them in. 
And so God has commissioned you and I to take the gospel to those that we know, that we interact with, where we live, where we work, and where we play. So who better to, think about this, who better to reach the people in your circles of influence than the indigenous one who lives in those influences or those circles of influence? You're the indigenous one that God, the natural person, the the person from that community of whatever it is that God has already placed there in his sovereignty, in his goodness, and in his grace to reach those people with the gospel. He didn't call me to go do that. He's already placed you there. I'm there to be your cheerleader, to to fan the flame of the gospel in your life, and so that you can be the missionary set upon a hill there proclaiming the good news to them. And I'm to do the same in the circles of influence that I have. This is going to require three things. Man, i got to hurry this morning. You guys just don't listen fast enough. <laughs> it's going to require three things. You're going to first have to know the gospel. I'm speaking to believers here. If, you, if you're not in Christ, obviously the, the preeminent thing is you need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to come to a point that these girls uh, testified of this morning where you realize I'm a sinner and I'm undone. I'm under the just wrath of a holy God and without Christ in my life and his forgiveness, I will be a crispy critter one day. And you come humbly before him and you're begging for forgiveness. And the Bible says that if we will confess him as Lord, we will become a follower of Jesus Christ. He will save us. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is how you, will, you can reach people with the gospel. Here's some things it's going to require. First of all, you're going to have to know the gospel. Know the gospel. You know, uh, many people who are Christians would just simply say, I don't, re- I don't really know the gospel. It's not easy. You see, Jesus has made it so simple that a child can believe. In fact, he, he, um, he rebukes those people who would think that they can and should come to Jesus by anything more than a childlike faith. It's so simple that a child can believe it. It's so vast and deep that the greatest intellect and the greatest mind of all time can never delve to its deep, to its depths. Know the gospel. Know the gospel. Be able to share the gospel. Understand what it is. Understand and be able to communicate with that, that with others. And we, we, we use a strategy here. I shared it a couple years ago called Three Circles. It's so simple. Many times, if not every Sunday, I use it in how we set up the invitation and the response time. I talk about how you've been designed by God, made by God, for God, in relationship. But all of a sudden, what we see in the Bible is that brokenness entered the world because of sin. And so you're broken and I'm broken. And the hope for our brokenness is the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. I can have the new life with Jesus, the life that I was created for. The gospel is not rocket science. It is simple and yet profound. So you've got to know the gospel, be able to share the gospel, and then you've got to have a life that bears witness to the gospel. You see, if I'm saying to others, Jesus can change your life, but they look at my life and they see that I'm just like them, broken and hopeless and hateful and mean, cheating on my wife or whatever the sin may be, if they see that in me, they're going to say, I don't want any Jesus that that guy has. It's funny how lost people understand that as a Christian we should look holy because Jesus is holy. But for whatever reason, we get so comfortable in our, uh, our, our, our Christianity that we don't think others are that aware of our sinfulness. We want to get in as close as we can to sin. We want to get in and, and just kind of ride our foot over the line and, and blur it so much so that when people see us, because we want to be relevant to them, they don't see any contrast, and so we look just like them, which is not attractive at all. So we've got to have a life that bears witness to the gospel. The future of the world depends on every believer. The average people being able to proclaim it in everyday life. And if I believe that, there's something I have to do with the gospel. Let me give you five direct truths of the work of an evangelist. And I'm going to do this quickly. I promise we won't be here until at least two or three. Truth number one. When Paul says here, do the work of an evangelist, this is a direct command to obey. A direct command to obey. It goes back to what we believe about the Bible. If this is God's word to us, and it's authoritative and sufficient and and, and everything that we need for life and ministry, then we need to understand that this is a command, and a command is to be obeyed. It's not up for debate. It's not a suggestion. It's not if you feel like it. It's not if you want to. It is a command from the Lord God of heaven. The Great Commission is this command that we're to live out. 
The instruction here in verse 5 is also God's command to Paul and to us. And so the question before us when we look at this is this. Will we obey the command? Will, in, will I, in my circles of influence, where I live, where I work, where I play, and everything in between, will I follow the direction of God's Spirit in my life, open my mouth, and say the gospel to people? Truth number two, this is a calling above all. It's calling. If you're like me, when you hear commands because of our fallenness, you don't like them, right? You don't like to be told what to do. We, we, we want freedom. We got in this mess because we wanted to do our own thing, right? Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say if you eat of this tree that you're going to be, uh, you're going to die? You know, so we began to question that. God's holding out on me. That nature is passed down to each and every one of us in every generation. So when we hear commands, our natural tendency is to do the opposite. You ever been in a room where it got a sign there that says wet paint? What do you do when you see that sign? You touch it. I touch it all the time. I want to see if it's still wet. It's like I'm a, um, a CSI guy. I'm going over there. I got my equipment. I want to know what time of the day and which day of the year they painted this, how long that sign's been up there. I want to know, right? That's my nature. That's my sin nature. We want to do the opposite. When we should just take the word for what it is and believe it and obey it. Along with that, commands can feel dry and crusty. They're not fun. It's hard to be excited about following the rules. I understand. Some of you, by personality, you are full, you're a rule follower, right? You people drive us nuts. I like to break rules. Breaking rules are so much more fun than, than keeping rules. But they also get you in a whole lot more trouble. So I'm not advocating that. I just want you to know. We're not advocating breaking rules. I'm just telling you by nature, I like to break them. It's a whole lot more fun until those blue lights come up behind you. I believe that's why the Lord takes it a step further. You see, in the Great Commission, he says, you're to go and to make disciples. But also with that commission, he's saying, why don't you join me? I want you to join me in this global mission of changing lives. You think God needs you and I to do this? Not at all. He didn't, he didn't use anybody to reach out to Abraham. Abraham was a pagan, living his own life, doing his own thing, no thought whatsoever about God. And God reached out to him there in Genesis 12 and called him to himself and says, Abraham, I want you to pick your stuff up and I want you to go to a place I'm not even going to tell you about. And the Bible tells us Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He didn't send a missionary. He didn't send somebody to him. He doesn't need us. But what God does is he invites us in his mission, his global mission of taking the gospel to every single person on the face of the earth. It's a calling on our lives. And a calling brings with it passion and zeal. It gives us a sense of ownership. It gives us a sense of accomplishment. It gives us something like we feel when we were kids and our dad and our mom takes us or invites us to go and to do something. And as parents now, we realize that the kid is getting in the way, right? But as a kid, you're thinking, I get to participate. I get to do something. I get to help dad. And as a dad, I'm thinking, I could have been done three hours ago if I didn't have to keep fixing all this stuff that they're... Well, my kids are I shouldn't say this. But um, love y'all. But it's true. They'll know it one day. Doesn't mean I don't want them to help. I invite them to come and help. But I don't need their help in a lot of things. God doesn't need your help. But he invites you into his global work of reaching people with the gospel. And so let's remember that God has called you and I to join him in his mission. Third truth, this is a multifaceted work. Most likely, the Lord has sent others to help you reach the people that are in your networks. It's not just on you. I think sometimes, though, if you feel that weight, awesome. At least you're feeling the weight and the burden of the gospel. But understand something. God most likely has other people tasked at the same objective that you are. And so there's one person who's, or multiple people who are plowing the ground and tilling the soil and preparing it for the sowing of the gospel. Others are coming along and you're sharing the gospel and, and you're doing different things. And then there's others who come along and water the gospel. And, and so this layering begins to take place in a person's life. People serving and ministering to the same person, multifaceted, people from all different walks of life coming together. And God uses that to plant the seed in the heart of that individual. And one day... It germinates, takes root, and new life comes to be. It's a multifaceted work. 
fourth truth. This is a focus with a goal in mind. Gospel work will not just happen in your life. Nothing just happens in your life except for chaos. Have you, have you figured that one out yet? Nothing happens in your, in your life except what you don't want to happen. If you want to be financially sound, you work toward that. If you want to have a great career, you work toward that. If you want to have a great family, you work toward that. If you want to have a great spiritual walk with Christ, you work toward that. Not work for your salvation, but you put your salvation to work once you're in Christ. You've got to have a focus and a goal that's in mind. It takes intentionality. We're about to have school start up. We've got teachers in the room. Uh, if, if students want to be successful and pass their SOLs in the spring, if they want to uh, pass that grade and move on to the next grade, it just doesn't happen. It takes focus and intentionality. You don't graduate. I can tell you right now, I was a straight-A student in high school. I went into my first semester of college and switched two weeks before and went to community college, took six or nine hours, three classes, failed six and passed three Passed one class with a C, communications, go figure that one. I do that for a living now. Decided I needed to get my act together and not worry about working. I needed to focus on my education and transferred from the community college to the University of Arkansas with a .9 GPA. I went in on probation. Graduated the 2.7. So let me just give you some encouragement, or not, not encouragement. Encouragement is you can make it. Um, let me give you some help if you're going towards college. Start strong, don't start weak. It's hard to dig out of a .9 GPA. You can't bring that up to a 4.0. The best I could do with some pretty good grades is a 2.7. And I graduated high school with a 3.9. So um, it is what it is. It takes focus. It takes intentionality. What do I mean? How, how do I do this as a Christian? One good practice is to have a list of lost people you're praying over. People that are on your heart, on your mind. On paper, on purpose is what Dave Ramsey would say praying for people. Pray over their salvation or pray for their salvation on a daily basis. Pray for opportunities and boldness to share the gospel with them. Pray for God to bring others into their path who will share the gospel with them. That's that multifaceted idea. That's one of the things I do is I'm praying for people, not just that I would have opportunities to minister to them, but God put people in their, in their path to love them to Jesus, whatever that means. Different ways, different things. Pray and share with focus, having their salvation always as the goal on your heart and on your mind. So the focus is with the goal in mind. Fifth and the last truth about the work of an evangelist is that this is evaluated and rewarded in the end. Evaluation and rewards are good motivators. If you know you're going to have to give an account for something, what do you typically do? You get the job done. Now some of you are procrastinators and you get the job done at the 11th hour. Got any 11th hour that just want to confess this morning? I'm a procrastinator, and, and uh, I, don't, I don't know what people say in AA. I was going to kind of joke up at that, but I don't know what they say. But you just self-identifying as a procrastinator. I somewhat understand. I like, the, I like the gun. I don't like procrastination, but when it comes to writing and things like that, all throughout school, I felt the pressure, and I felt like I performed best. But, man, it was it stressful. Night before, and you're trying to write a 20-page paper, not good for the stress level and the anxiety. But the whole idea that knowing you're going to be evaluated and reward, that's a good motivator to do the right thing. And thankfully, the Lord puts both of these on us. So put yourself under the mentorship of another believer who is a soul winner. Knowing that you're going to give an account, knowing that you've been called to be a witness, to be a, an evangelist in your life, what do you need to do? I would encourage you to do this. Find a brother or a sister who's been doing it longer and better than you are and say, help me become what you are. As Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Slide yourself up close to that person and learn from them as a mentor. Let them teach you how to be someone who can lead people to Christ. Let them teach you how to be someone who can minister to people in their situations. Learn from that man, that woman, that boy or that girl. Allow them to evaluate and to help you get better. Give them the permission to speak into your life. I think the reason most of us don't get close to others is because we don't want them to tell us the negative. Who likes to be told that you are not cutting it? Who likes job evaluations? Thank you. I appreciate you all being honest. As an employer, who likes to do evaluations, staff evaluations? I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I, I dread it like the plague with our staff. Do I need to do it? Absolutely. Is it important? You betcha. hate it. It's confrontational. 
I've got to say the truth. I've got to be honest about the situation. I've got to call them out in some areas that are not right. And I give our staff an opportunity to evaluate me. And so I don't like them saying, you're a horrible boss. They don't say that because they'd be, no, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't fire them. <laughs> Evaluated and rewarded. Think about this. There's a reward for being faithful to the gospel. You know what the reward, one of the rewards is? You get to see them walk in obedience. You get to lead them to faith in Jesus. You get to see them be baptized. You get to see them grow in the newfound faith. You get an opportunity to disciple them. That is a reward that is so refreshing. And there's something even greater than that. There's coming a day that when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to look at us and he's going to evaluate what we did with what he gave us. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But you know what? He'll only say that if you've done well done. It ought to motivate us with the gospel. Spurgeon said it right. Soul winning is the chief business of every Christian. And so if this is true, then it means that the Lord has placed you where you are for the purpose of engaging in gospel work. God has placed you where you live. I want you to think about where you live this morning. He didn't lead you to the house or the apartment or wherever you may live because it was the Next best thing, he strategically placed you there. He didn't give you your job because it was a place to provide money for your family first and foremost. He gave you your job for the gospel. He doesn't give you the relationships and the places of fun that you have just for the sake of fun. And I believe God is a fun God. Let us as Southern Baptists quit making God seem so stuffy. I like what John Piper, the emphasis he puts on hedonism, this idea of pleasure. He calls it Christian hedonism. God created us for pleasure, but pleasure that's found in him. There's no greater fun than knowing and being in a relationship with God. There's no greater experience, no greater journey than being on the journey with God, whatever that journey looks like. But God places you in those places for the gospel. Friends you have, the businesses you shop are all part of his sovereign mission to redeem men, women, boys, and girls. He has called us to join him in this global work of redemption, to engage in gospel work. And so this reminds us of the good news that the Bible declares. Some good news, some bad news, and some best news. I mentioned earlier, every one of us have been made by God and for God, designed perfectly to relate to him. There's no other creature on the face of the earth that has the ability that we have to relate to God. Not even the angels can experience what we have the opportunity to experience with God the Father. In fact, the New Testament tells us the angels long to understand the mystery of this gospel that we are involved in, this relationship that we have. God has uniquely designed us to be in relationship with him. But the bad news is that offsets this good news is that you and I are sinful and broken. We possess the inherited and self-inflicted wound of Adam. This nature that came from the garden has been passed down. We're born in rebellion to God. We're under the just penalty of this holy God. It's produced brokenness in all of our lives, and that is pervasive in every way, and it looks so many different ways in all of us. We go on wounding ourselves time and time again, further alienating ourselves from God. But the best news is that the gospel declares through the Son that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. I love Romans 5.8. God shows us, he demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His life was a substitute, dying, sacrificing, shedding blood in our place, taking the wrath of God the Father that you and I deserve. Jesus bore it in his own body so that we could be forgiven of all sin. It's the great mystery of God's redemption. Why would a holy God sacrifice himself to redeem a rebellious people that's constantly trying to reject him in every way? Why would that happen? I don't understand. It's just grace. But, God, but the Bible tells us that God calls us to make a choice. To say yes to Christ or to say no. And so this morning, as the church, we're to believe the Bible. We're to live out the Bible. That means we're to take the gospel to the people you yet, have yet to believe. But this morning, there could be some in here that you're, you're living in that bad news still. You're living in that bad news. 
you're apart from Jesus, you're separated from Jesus, and yet the gospel has been declared to you this morning. So you're not saved and taken to heaven because you're a good person or self-righteous or you're in church for a long enough time or you helped enough older ladies across the road or whatever we may construct and say, all right, this is my good and it outweighs my bad. Therefore, the balance is tipped in my way and God should and he could accept me based upon my merit. That's not the gospel. What the Bible tells us is that our righteousness is like filthy rags in his sight. It can never tip the balance into our own favor Yet God, through Jesus, came to redeem us. And so it's le- we're left with a choice. What will we do with that this morning? Some of you need to put your faith in Jesus today. You need to say yes to Christ, like my daughter did a number of days ago, like others have done that have been baptized this summer. So my prayer is that today you will come. Not walking an aisle doesn't save you, but we'll get you with one of our encouragers. They'll take you out and talk further about the gospel. And you'll have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Others may need to say, I need to be baptized. I, need, I want to join this church. I want to get involved or whatever the decision may be. Some just may need to pray at your seat, at this altar, whatever it is. But God's word is spoken. It's his voice. Now it's our responsibility to respond in faith and obedience. Amen? Let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, in a sinful age in which we live, what a comfort it is to know that we have a, a voice, a word from heaven. This morning you have reminded us of what you have done for us through the cross, through the blood, through the resurrection. You've reminded us of how you change lives. Baptism is a picture of a changed life. The testimony of the demoniac in Mark 5 is a testimony of a changed life. God, my prayer this morning is if, that, if there is a man or a woman, a child today that's never said yes to Jesus... God, may your spirit so move and press upon them this urge to say yes to Jesus, that, God, they would step out of their seat, walk this aisle, and have a conversation with one of our encouragers, and today put their faith in Jesus. God, I pray against anything that would hinder that. I pray against anything that would cause them to say, you know what, I can do that another time. The Bible would say today is the day of salvation. Today is the day they need to say yes may not be another time and I don't pray that I don't say that to scare I just pray and say that so that we can understand and remind ourselves that every moment in our life is precious and is a gift we're not promised tomorrow we're not promised the next minute so God may we say yes to you today move in this time of response be honored and glorified in it, I pray in Jesus' name.